Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. back last night from, I don't know where, Sweden, uh, via Germany, and um, I'm a little bit jet-lagged, and it's good to be here. So I want to start just by um, dedicating the evening to uh, my friends uh, Alex Bemrose and Matthew Remsky, because they just had a baby, and uh, baby's name is Jacob Kale, and um, he was born on Saturday morning. Um, Matthew and I, for the last two months, have been working on a book uh, about fatherhood. So. Um, in the months leading up to the birth, Matthew wrote me and said, well, he just started writing me these long letters. So then I would write him back these long letters. And then within two months, we have, like, it's enormous. <laughs> so um, we're turning these long emails about being dads uh, into, a, into a little book. So I'm just really happy for them. Um, and also I, I want to thank... Um, Elaine and Sarah and is Simone somewhere? Oh, in the back. Uh, just for looking after things while I've been away. Um, I haven't read all of Elaine's talk, but from what I hear, it was very personal. And Elaine shared a little bit um, with all of you about what it's like to be an oddball. And if you ever hang out with Elaine for just a short <laughs> period of time, she's kind of an oddball. And um, it's it's lovely that you share your eccentricity with all of us. Take, take some courage to get up here and give a talk. Um, and um, uh, thank you, Sarah, for teaching yoga and being around. I got to hang out today with Sarah's one-year-old. And um, if you ever watch Sarah being a mom, um, it's pretty amazing. I admire your mother. Uh, every Monday I go to the farmer's market and uh, uh, 
Parkdale, and Sarah's always there. She has a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Somehow she's like all together. And like kids with food all over them and crying. Anyways, it's really great. And um, thank you, Simone, for your great talk on projection. So I, I haven't heard the audio version, but I read the text version a few times. And um, I was really impressed with the way you just can take practice in your own experience and like really digest it and, and give it back to all of us. So I, I actually think that Simone's talk is one of the best Dharma talks I've heard in a long time. I think sometimes to bring the psychological piece together with the Dharma piece without losing one or the other is really tricky. Uh, sometimes we can make Dharma practice just seem too psychological. Um, and uh, anyways, it was a perfect balance. So, okay. So, um... Let's begin with Simone. Here is something she said two weeks ago. How many of you were here for that, that talk? Oh, a little more than half. Yeah. Yeah. When we hear the instruction to just accept whatever arises, this is what is meant. <laughs> I'll read that again. When we hear the instruction to just accept whatever arises, this is what is meant. But we don't reclaim them just so that we can attach them to a previously existing solid entity. If I am a solid entity of Simoneness, and I reclaim a disowned quality of bossiness, I am still stuck in a delusion. From a Buddhist perspective, this larger notion of self and then in brackets, my bossiness plus my other qualities as attentive, such as attentiveness is too rigid, and it isn't even true. I am holding on to a past fleeting moment. I now have a dream about my bossiness that I am holding on to. Then she has this sentence, we can only reclaim in a fleeting moment-by-moment way. So that's what I want to focus on tonight. We can only reclaim in a fleeting moment-by-moment way. So I I don't know if this was influenced at all by the part when we were talking in the Jung talks about not having too many parts of ourselves, you know. Um, We can only reclaim in a fleeting moment-by-moment way. So I wanted to, to bring this to bear on a, one of my favorite koans of all time. Um, it goes like this. One day, Enkan called to his attendant. Oh, first let me set up the scene. So there's a teacher at the front of the room. It's an old Japanese temple. And usually there would be two people on either side of the teacher. One person would be the attendant to the teacher. And that's someone who's usually studying pretty closely with the teacher. And uh, I've been an attendant, and the job of an attendant is you just watch really carefully. And there's all kinds of formality around it, but 
you know, you can see if the teacher's needing tea, and it's there before they even think about it. Um, and then on the other side, traditionally, there would be an artist or a calligrapher. And at some point where there was like a good punchline in the talk, the calligrapher would just, you know, create something. You know? And um, so this is the scene. Uh, and um, here's what happens. One day, Enkan, who's the teacher, he called to his attendant, Bring me the rhinoceros fan. The attendant said, The fan is broken. Enkan said, If the fan is broken, then bring me the rhinoceros. So, let me set this up a little. <laughs> Teachers at the front of the room turns to the attendant and says, bring me the rhinoceros fan. So, you know, in these old temples, it used to be that if there were people in the community who had nice things at home, maybe somebody gives you a really special gift of um, uh, a beautiful package of incense, then it's so beautiful, you don't want to keep that for yourself. So you would bring it to your teacher, or you would bring it to the community, or it would become some artifact in the temple. So, for example, um, when there's a need in the temple, if you have something that you can give, you bring it. So Angela, you know, is into clocks, so she brought us a beautiful clock, the finest quality plastic clock that you can get. So... Um, anyways, probably what happened was one of the finest kind of fans you could have would be made out of the bone from rhinoceros. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a rhinoceros fan is not just a fan whose handle is made out of bone, but probably if you opened up the fan, there'd be some amazing calligraphy of, you know, a rhinoceros and a full moon or something. So this is the rhinoceros fan. It's probably a gift. And um, I imagine when I see the scene that actually the fan is actually right beside the teacher. So it's not like the fan is somewhere else and the attendant has to go get it. But it's like a trick. So the teacher says to the attendant, bring me the rhinoceros fan. And the attendant realizes the rhinoceros fan is broken. It's broken. And can you imagine the attendant just kind of freezes? Because if you're an attendant, you're like always on eggshells, you know? But I've been an attendant, and so, you know, my job sometimes would be, for example, like to hold the incense. And so I'd be holding the incense all perfect. And then my teacher, Enka Roshi, would, like, she'd come around and she'd, like, rub my shoulders. It's basically like, relax. Like, be yourself. So the attendant's job, and, and the teacher's really teaching the attendant all the time. So the attendant freezes up. The fan's broken. So the teacher says, then just bring me the rhinoceros. Bring me the whole thing. So this is a famous, famous koan, and uh, as I said, one of my favorite. Um, Everything's broken. Um, your life is broken, isn't it? Isn't that why you're here? 
<laughs> Your relationships have been broken. My wrist has been broken. My son's arm was broken this year. Trying to keep up with a girl on the monkey bars. Um, there was a famous Thai uh, Buddhist teacher named Ajahn Chah. And um, he was the teacher of uh, Jack Cornfield. And uh, Jack Cornfield relays this story that one of the teachings that Ajahn Chah used to give was that Ajahn Chah would hold up a teacup and he would say, this teacup is broken. And his teaching was to, to see the teacup as broken. One day, the teacup will be broken. So if you can look at a beautiful teacup and just see it as broken, then when it breaks, it's okay. When I was in Kyoto in April, um, I've never been that interested in um, pottery. But when I was in Kyoto, I became obsessed with pottery. So I spent all my money, which was supposed to go to food, not eating out, and saving up every day. I would have a little extra money, and I would go to find like these small potters, and I brought home all. So I brought home like maybe eight or nine pieces of pottery. There's only two left. It, since April, every single one of them has been broken. <laughs> so I, I should have done this practice. And I mean, maybe we should do this when you buy a car, right? You buy a car, and it's, you get this car. Oh, my God, it's under warranty. It's amazing. And, but when you look at the car, you should just see it as broken. And then it will save you a lot of hassle. <laughs> um, Encon says, bring me the rhinoceros fan. So, um, it's like saying, you know, bring me everything. Bring me love. Bring me uh, something with warranty. Bring me happiness. Bring me a perfect childhood. Bring me perfect parents. Bring me a perfect career. Um, and the attendant says, the fan's broken. So uh, in, in Japanese art, the rhinoceros is like saying God or original mind. The rhinoceros is like, it's so big, you can't get your mind around it. Some of you might know that story of the, the, that the Buddha tells about the blind people and the elephant where there's this elephant and there's ten blind people around the elephant. And uh, the one blind man is holding the leg of the elephant and saying, this elephant is a lot like the trunk of a tree. And somebody else is like rubbing the eyelashes, saying, the elephant is very feathery, very soft. And someone else is holding a tail thing. It's quite wiggly, actually. It's really wiggly. And the Buddha says, this is a lot like the Dharma, and it's a lot like your life. You, you, your mind can't ever capture the whole thing. So the, the rhinoceros is like pure mind. That, that part of our life, that it's nirvana. Your, your mind can't get around what it is. It's inconceivable. So in the scene, 
the test to the attendant is maybe the teacher knew the rhinoceros fan was broken. That's possible. Sitting right next to the teacher, he probably saw it was broken. So it's like a test. Show, show me everything. Show me who you are. Show me your perfection. It's like if somebody said to you, show me your perfection. Someone said, bring me the rhinoceros. Fan's broken. Well, then bring me the rhinoceros. Well, the rhinoceros is everything. But the attendant freezes up. Like I would freeze up, maybe, or you would freeze up. How we all freeze up. When we're asked to show ourselves. Who are you? Teacher says, who are you? I think that all day we're asked this question. To show up as we really are. Which has to include how you're broken. Or maybe you're a little ashamed of how you're broken. And so you you split yourself off into parts. And you just try and show some idealistic version of the rhinoceros. I'm pure. There's this wonderful line I like to quote a lot from a text uh, translated only once into English from the Chinese by Robert Aitken. The text is called the Vegetable Root Sutra. That's enough to like the book. <laughs> and in it, the text the line uh, halfway through the book says, Water that is too pure has no fish. Water that is too... We have lakes like this in Ontario from acid rain. You know, it looks like there's places in northern Algonquin Park where there's these lakes that look like they're from the Caribbean. It's incredible. You can see right through to the bottom. There's nothing living in them. So water that is too pure has no fish. Therefore, you should always keep a measure of grime in your practice. Isn't that nice? Therefore, you should always keep a measure of grime in your practice. So the attendant got stuck. Uh, He got frozen. Because the request was so huge and so absurd. But isn't that what's being asked of us all the time? Bring me your whole self right now. Bring me your whole self right now. Two kids crying at the farmer's market. You bring your whole self. Feeling awkward, giving a talk. Yeah? Talking about yourself. So be awkward. Give a talk. Talk about yourself. Jet lag. I'm six hours ahead. So this is really all just a dream. (laughs) So the rhino is just like saying, here I am. Here I am. Awkward, confused, confident, scared, joyful, bored. Are you trying to be a good student? 
Are you trying to have a life that's pure? Are you distracted all the time? Trying to manage all the parts of yourself? Or can you just show up as you are in the moment? Like Simone said, we can only reclaim, so which I hear is you can only be whole, in a fleeting moment-by-moment way. So in this moment, can you show up? That's what we're doing in the meditation practice over and over again. It's showing up again to this anchor of breathing, to present experience. Can we extend that from our breathing in stillness to our relationships? Can you show up as yourself? Or are you holding back? And this is what Enkan is saying to the attendant. There's a wonderful story uh, about, um, some of you might know, it's a Sufi story, about a, a guy who loses his keys. He loses his keys, and so he uh, goes under the street light looking for his keys, and he gets down on his hands and knees, and it's late at night, and he's trying to find his keys somewhere. And somebody comes by and says, Nasruddin, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you on your hands and knees? He says, oh, I've lost my keys. Says, well, where did you lose them? He says, oh, back by the house. <laughs> well, why are you looking here? Well, because there's more light here. <laughs> I think we do that a lot, don't we? We just find some place where it's pleasurable, it's comfortable. We just hang out there. I think some of us can get in situations where we've been wanting comfort for so long that we'll actually uh, lose too much of ourselves to have some comfort. You just have the right apartment with the right stuff. And slowly the comfort starts to kill you. So maybe this attendant was actually frightened. Um, frightened by the fact that the teacher wanted to see his whole self. Bring me the broken fan. Can you bring the rhino separate from the fan? Of course not. It's interesting, um, I just got this app on my iPad where you can, this is what I do in airports, and, and you, it, it scans all the, I forgot what the app is called, but anyways, it scans all the um, journals in a particular area for the week and like shows you all the cool articles that have come out. Of it. So I, I, I was looking at neuroscience journals, and so there's this, uh, interesting study that was just done. I'm sorry that I don't have it here because it's great to read, but um, where 
they were showing how mind wandering, and they had this really cool phrase for it, like a mind that can time travel. <laughs> so minds that time travel or mind wandering is directly proportionate to negative moods. And so what they did is they 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 would take people. Um, uh, they did this a lot with college students. They, the, the studies would take people and they would investigate their default mind. So they would put them in a room and they wouldn't give them anything. Just be in the room. And they wouldn't give them like any images to look at or music or just nothing. And then to see, for them to see, where does your mind go? Where does your mind go? And then they would hook them up to fMRI machines. And then they would see that for people who are untrained in some kind of attention practice, that their default mind state would go to autobiographical memory. And it would light up the places in the brain where there was self-reference. So they've actually mapped areas of the brain that light up when there's a lot of self-referential thinking. And they were comparing meditators and people who don't have any meditation background. And they were showing how people who don't have some kind of mind training tend to go into default thinking when they have nothing to do. That, ha that involves autobiographical memory. And then they were linking, this is the part of the study that was interesting, they were then linking how when you default into self-referential thinking, it actually leads to negative mind states. And, I mean, you could say, oh, I know this, but do you? Do you? So I think to be, to be whole, we need to be able to work with the mind in such a way where we're not going into default comfort zones, that are just self-referential, which is just like looking under the small light for the key. And actually, what I like about this story is it's a key he's looking for, key to his own house, key to your own house. So um, I think that the job of a teacher is to encourage students to bring the fan out. Or I'd say another way, to fan out. Um, it's like saying, oh, your fan is broken? Bring it out. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but this is a practice I do a lot with, with some of you, especially on retreat. Somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, frustrated. And so I'll say, show me. Because otherwise you have what Simone was saying in this quote. You have, like, one part of you related to another part of you. 
So if I say, oh, I'm feeling frustrated. Uh, so in this tradition, we say, oh, that's a little bit dualistic. So we want to practice samadhi, which is just to be one with what's going on. So if somebody's feeling agitated, say, okay, let's see. And then oftentimes, they'll freeze. Oh, fan's broken. (laughs) So I can say I'm agitated, but I can't show that I'm agitated. That's not being one with agitation. That's intellectualizing. It's distancing a little bit. And then my experience of it in the moment, being with somebody, is that it's distancing. Because we're, we're not together in that moment. And sometimes I have to do it too. Say, oh, I, I'm not paying attention. I remember one time with, with my teacher, it's very hard working with my teacher sometimes. Um, because she never gives me what I want. <laughs> and I remember one time I came into a room and I was having a hard time in my life then. And... Um, I started talking about difficulties in my relationship and how I thought maybe really it should end and you know but I had a kid and you know I didn't know what to do and and, and you know sometimes when you get into that kind of like way of talking you don't even look at the person just so I'm like looking down going you know and I'm going through the whole story and then suddenly she goes ha <laughs> and I jumped up like I've never levitated but I really like whew. and then when I sat down she said oh I've heard this story before and then in the moment I was right there just like maybe you are now. sometimes you need something just to shift the perspective Another thing that happens when you when you work with with her is she keeps a stick right between you. So you have your your cushion here, her cushion here, and she has a stick. Just in case she has to use it. This summer on retreat, the same teacher said, um, she said, she gave a talk and she said, you know, I, I didn't get the life that I was supposed to have because uh, I didn't get the body my mother wanted me to have. And then she picked up her foot and she showed her toenail. She's like, but when I see my toenail, I realize I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing with my life. And she has this kind of mangled toenail. Her feet just look like she's been meditating for 40 years. It was really beautiful. How many of us do this? You just look at a part of your body and say, it's the rhinoceros. It's the whole thing. It's broken. It's broken. Her toenails, she couldn't model um, in a nail polish act. (laughs) And when she looks at her toes, 
that now I look at my toenail and I see I'm living exactly the life that I want to be living. Can you say that when you look at your toenail? When you look at your arm, your hand? Can you look at your hand and see it? it's broken? It's aging. Are your arms supposed to look different than they are? I just went through this in France because um, I I was teaching in Copenhagen and then... um, I realized that um, when I was in Copenhagen, I realized, oh, I'm going to be with my partner Karina in France, and this is probably going to be the last time that we're spending like some time together because we have a baby coming. And, you know, once you have a baby, you never see your partner again. <laughs> and so um, we'll have to get advice on that. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to propose to her. So then I had like one image of how it would be. It's like, oh, we're going to be by the water. It's going to be sunny. Everyone around us is going to be speaking French. I'm going to do it in French. And then I was like trying to imagine how it would go. Like, what do you do? Do you say like, will you marry me? Or do you like kneel down and and then, you know, so I was like, every day I was replaying it. So when I was in Copenhagen, my friend told me where I could get, like, a ring. So I went and got a ring. And then I'm not good at um, hiding things. So that, like, many times she almost found it in my bag. Oh, no. And then anyway, so finally, um, we, we got to France. And so Karina's pregnant, so she has to eat like every 40 minutes. <laughs> and if she doesn't eat every 40 minutes, she's really nauseous. So she ate breakfast, and then I'm like, okay, let's go for a walk. Because I wanted to, to do it at the beginning of our time off together so that we could like feel like it was like a honeymoon or whatever. Or I guess you do that after you get married. I don't know how it works. But anyways, so then we finally go for a long walk, and then it starts raining. <laughs> so it's the south of France it's not supposed to rain so anyway it starts raining and then so we stop and we get a tea and we get like you know, um, some fruit for our place we take the fruit back then the sun comes out I'm like okay the sun's out so we go we go for a long walk down we're in Antibes so it's like this Walden city beautiful walk along the water and then I see a spot where we can do it. So we go down, and I so there's some rocks, and then we're walking down the stairs. She's like, she's like, I've got to eat. I'm like, you can't eat right now. She's like, no, 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 I have to go eat. I really have to go eat. And I could see it in her face. And so then we had to go eat. So then we went and we ate, and then uh, we finished eating. And guess what? It starts pouring rain. Yeah. So anyways, this is going on all day, and. Um, Anyways, by the end of the afternoon, um, I took her to this one spot and I proposed. It was really beautiful. And 
And in the moment of proposing, it was like, I was so nervous. Because then I recognized, like, I was nervous because I had to bring, like, all of me. So when you propose, you, like, you, you have to be there for it, you know? And I could just feel in my words, like, the ocean, the imperfect day, the perfect day, the vacation, like, everything all at once. And, and so I started crying, and she started crying. It's really beautiful, beautiful moment. I'm sure many of you have had these kinds of experiences before, but it took so many rehearsals to get to the point where I could show up and actually feel in my body that I could say, you know, I don't remember what I said, but whatever I said. It wasn't, will you marry me? It was better than that. (laughs) I don't remember anymore. Um, so how, how do we do this in relationship? How do, we, how do we bring ourselves? And how do we see that what we're doing in the meditation practice is bringing ourselves to the moment? And it's not like there's this self that you bring forward to the moment. It's that what's going on in the moment, the energy of the moment, is you. It's one thing not to separate out. So I'll tell you a little story and then we'll, we'll open it up for discussion. It's a wonderful uh, story about a monk who has an awakening experience. So he has this experience where everything shifts and he just sees his life from a totally new perspective. So to celebrate, his teacher takes him to Mount Fuji, and they walk up Mount Fuji all the way up this... I don't know if you've ever been to Mount Fuji, but it's just its a snowy volcano. And they walk up Mount Fuji in the winter, and the monk says, Roshi, do you hear the birds? I've never heard birds like this before. They're so beautiful. And the teacher grunts, barely says a word, and just thumps his cane down into the soil. And then on and on, the student goes, Oh, Roshi, look at the snow. This is the most beautiful, pristine snow I've ever seen. Oh, look at the clouds. Aren't the clouds amazing right now? And and, and um, the Roshi just listens. And then he says, Oh, Roshi, do you see the way the wind blows the snow across the cone of the volcano? how the clouds drift past on the wind. There's no separation between us and the volcano and the wind and the earth. And the Roshi hisses and says, yes, yes, it's true. But what a pity to say so. Isn't that nice? What? Just to say too much, as I'm probably about to do. Just to say too much. So the last thing I want to say about this is you know, one reason why maybe the attendant froze at the moment of the rhinoceros request is because the attendant had to feel like he had to say everything. He had to be perfect. He had to say the ultimate. Just like we have to achieve Buddhahood or we have to realize God or whatever it is. And then we miss the mark. 
We miss the mark because our ideals can't ever match up with who we are. Are there places in your relationships where you're not showing up and you think it's because of the other? How can you show up? Or are you talking yourself out of it, saying too much? How do you communicate your life without summing up about it? It's like I could say at the end of the day, after having, you know, been in, you know, Karina and I getting engaged, I could say, that wasn't that an amazing day? But summing up. Even though it was an amazing day. <laughs> so. The ending of the koan goes like this. Teacher says, Bring me the rhinoceros fan. The attendant freezes. The fan is broken. Teacher says, bring me the rhinoceros. Then bring me the rhinoceros. Bring me the whole thing. And the student is just frozen. Doesn't know what to do. And then the calligrapher stands up, paints an ensa. So that's that big circle. It's one brush stroke. And then right in the middle of it, he writes the character for rhinoceros. The calligrapher, he can respond. The student's trying to be a good student. He's not free like the calligrapher. And the calligrapher gets it, paints the circle, and then puts a rhinoceros in the middle. The thing about the circle, we have a beautiful one here in, in the corner, is um, it's one brush stroke, one breath, and just one chance. One chance, one breath, and the circle never should be finished. So it's never complete. Perfect breath, but it's never whole exactly. It's whole and it's broken, both at the same time. Like you. Like me. So, does anybody have any thoughts? Don't freeze. Doesn't have to be a perfect thought. What What do you hear? Come on. Um, how do you negotiate the reality that people in our life don't practice this as well? So when you show up and you bring your brokenness to the table, mm-hmm. and people respond in a way that isn't supportive of that, you know, how do you work with that? How do you say to them, well, this is, this is my complete circle? Yeah. Um, but when they don't speak the same language, how do you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Um, does anybody want to respond? She's basically asking for the rhinoceros fan. 
How do you respond to that? Anna? Um, I think you did. I think that sometimes when you show up with all of yourself and you totally can't or don't necessarily want to deal with that, that's it's, it's that kind of the ball in your court. Oh, that person's possibly not showing up with all of themselves at that moment. Maybe they're backpedaling or maybe they're judging or something. And it's right back to you. Well, okay, that's what's happening now. What do I feel from that? Or can I, how am I showing up again here, you know? Is it immediately like, were you asking for their acceptance? Did you need that? And now that they're not giving it, you're like, oh, no, I should have. I, you know, their judgment's sitting on me. Or can you be like, okay, you weren't there, or that's not what I need from that experience. I need to bring all of myself somewhere where someone is going to honor that Cassandra? Um, and to, to go along with that, I think that showing up with all of ourselves doesn't mean that we express everything that we're feeling. Like it, I think that there's like a discernment of like, you know, when who our audience is and who we're talking to and showing up like all of ourselves doesn't equal blah, this is everything that's happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think that there's wisdom in really knowing who we are showing up to and um, bringing compassion and discernment and uh, there's just a wisdom in not concealing parts of ourselves but learning how to um, like manage all of it. Or I don't know how to, what the right word is, but there's a balance between between ourselves and the other. I see it somewhat differently when I hear the story because sometimes a teacher may ask for something and then the student in his eagerness to think and do the right thing, he really misses the question because the teacher just asked for the fan whether it worked or not. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't up to the student to decide, mm-hmm. oh, it's not working, I can't bring it. Mm-hmm. And that's why the teacher said, well, bring me the rhinoceros because it is the whole thing. Uh-huh. But like uh-huh. we try, like in a relationship too, we always yeah. try to analyze and think we know already, so we can't do it, but really, Sometimes we are not asked for that and just bring to the table what has to be asked. Simone? You have to just speak up a little bit. Showing up and somebody not meeting you, as you show up once, and that that's such a big effort and such a big act within itself that then it will stop. But I think that um, what comes up is your ability to respond to not being there, mm-hmm. which is a, a continual show. Mm-hmm. So showing up with your disappointment, showing up with your pulling back, depending on how you're disappointed. Mm-hmm. 
uh, one thing that comes up for me is, you know, just, you know, I teach in a lot of different places, and it's so different teaching different kinds of groups. So, for example, in Sweden, I would, I would, you know, in the yoga class, for example, I would be working on a pose, and then I would say, okay, uh, so, you know, these are some of the dynamics, so now you try it, and then people try it and say, so does anybody have any questions? And the whole room would just be totally, for two days, it's like, it's like just nobody talks. Nobody asks a question. Nobody speaks. And I'm thinking, you know, do they understand? I don't know if they're picking up on it because it's hard when you're teaching if someone doesn't kind of respond because you don't know how they're taking it in. You, you can't know from the outside. So, but then what started to happening is I'd noticed that so nobody would ask a question. And then as soon as we had a break, there'd be a lineup. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's, you know, got lots of questions, you know, all, but, but in the group dynamic, for whatever reason, with a foreigner or with language or who knows, so many cultural reasons, not standing out, you know. So the only example that I could relate it to was uh, in certain situations in Japan where just the the kind of uh, vocabulary in people's bodies was to also not stand out so much. But in Japan, even while that's happening, there's this feeling of real warmth. But in Sweden, I didn't feel that. So for the first couple of days, I had no idea if anybody understood anything I was talking about um, until we started having these breaks in the day, and then there'd be these lineups of people. So... You know, how, how in that moment um, can I keep teaching and keep responding when there's no feedback? Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of a crisis for the personality. Because the personality is just feedback. You know? So it's very, it's very interesting. Somebody else. Yeah. What you're teaching regarding showing up, yeah. uh, what's the difference, if any, mm-hmm. between showing up and being reactive? Mm-hmm. You talk about it like you're frustrated because if you're and oftentimes mm-hmm. you get into the habit of being really reactive, lacking yeah. wisdom, you know mm-hmm. how to respond to a situation yeah. appropriately, you know, like what you were saying. Yeah. And when you say showing up, it I could interpret that's just reactive, whatever I feel, I feel, and that's okay. Right. Yeah. But that not so always was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your, your your suggestion? Is that what you mean? You react. Mm-hmm. Anybody? He's asking for the rhinoceros fan. It's <laughs> a great question. Does it mean just, I'm pissed off, so I'm just going to be pissed off? Kind of self-righteous a little bit. I don't have to do any work on it. Anybody? Anna? Uh, 
reaction to everything that's come before that moment of experience that has any impact on that and you're responding from there and that's your reactivity. Does that make sense? I don't know if it makes sense or not. Um, uh, versus also taking that into the field of, of things that are coming at you and choosing to respond from Anybody else? showing up means being fully present for what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a capacity. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so often I I'm not there to be fully present. And it really um, sometimes it's so easy and sometimes it's impossible. being fully present and also being aware of what's going on. You know, and that's really that's why we practice. Right? And I remember one time um, you know, I really think that that's the biggest gift you can give to somebody is to really be there, be present with them and not be somewhere else. Um, but I know that like, I have very strong habit energy be somewhere else. Hmm. You know? and so that's it's, it's a practice. Yeah. So maybe showing up is not just I forget which example, whether it was frustration or anger. It's not just frustration, it's frustration plus awareness. So it's more than the reactive are we getting somewhere? Um, I'm, not, I'm not much of a Buddhist scholar. But, uh, talk a lot about what a relief. I'm so glad there's no <laughs> <laughs> So you can feel free to correct me if you think a little hearing sort of um, 
people are talking about you know, being with them. You don't want to be with mm-hmm. them. But maybe it's, you should talk a little bit more about being with them. sharing with someone um, self-important emotion, happy emotion. Using hyperbole to illustrate a point, who are you talking to? You're talking to a child and sharing into a deep emotion. Mm-hmm. Communication might have to be more body language than it is with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing, maybe an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, being understanding This ties back, I think, to Celeste's point a little earlier. Can they hear you? It can be so frustrating when, you know, you have something to communicate and you become clear about how to communicate it, and then the other person can't hear you. How do you respond to that, too? I don't know how many of you have had this, you know, where, you know, there's something difficult you need to say to somebody, and you really, like, spend time trying to figure out how skillfully to say it, but they're just not in a position to hear it. No matter how well you think you've rehearsed it, they're not in a position to hear it. Mm-hmm. So you have to drop your rehearsal. How is this person in this moment? How can I respond? Maybe it's not safe for me. Or them. You can save yourself a lot of suffering. Remember what Shinra Suzuki said when we were studying Zen mind, beginner's mind? If you do things in the right way at the right time, everything will be organized. <laughs> I wish I could do this. I wish I could say this to the airline company. <laughs> Any other comments or questions before we finish up tonight? Okay. So let's finish chanting. We haven't been doing the Four Great Vows because um, we didn't have enough copies for everyone. So we'll just do it as a call and response.